The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia welcome to a special pop-up bonus extra episode of Gone by Lunchtime. Normal service will return next week, but today. Jeanette Fitzsimons is a totemic figure in green politics in New Zealand. She was part of the Values Party, a party which could be described as the world's first national green party, uh, founded 50 years ago and a couple of weeks ago today. And then, of course, she was a key instrumental part of the New Zealand Green Party itself. She was co-leader from 1995 to 2009 and a member of parliament for five terms from 1996. After Fitzsimons' death in 2020, Gareth Hughes, a Green MP himself uh, who had recently announced his retirement from politics, set about writing her biography from, I kid you not, a quarantine island in the middle of Otago Harbour. That book, A Gentle Radical, The Life of Jeanette Fitzsimons, has just been published and Gareth popped up to the spin-off studio last week to talk about the book and a bunch of other stuff. It's a book about Jeanette Fitzsimons but serves in a way also as a book about the early days of the Green Party and a sort of uh, partial history too of the early days of, of MMP because, of course, Fitzsimons' first entry to Parliament was as part of the Alliance. Big thanks to spin-off members as ever. If you want more of these sorts of cool podcasts, then please consider joining up. Kia ora, Gareth Hughes. Kia ora. Good to see you, Toby. Um, you have completed A Gentle Radical, The Life of Jeanette Fitzsimons, and you begin the book with a description of your encounter with him. Well, you begin the book with describing her in a, out in a boat protesting, but then you move to talking about how you met her in an, in an airport lounge of all places when you were applying for a job that you didn't get, but you got another one. And I wondered if you could just sort of set up for us your own relationship with Jeanette Fitzsimons. Was she a, a mentor, an inspiration, a, a, a boss, all of those things? Well, it evolved over time. It started off as a someone I watched on TV and sort of admired from afar, mm. someone who became a boss and was I was slightly terrified to meet because she was sort of this intellectual giant, uh, and then became a mentor and eventually became a friend. So... And one of the, seriously, one of the most uh, amazing people I've met in my life. Mm. So it was awesome to sort of capture and actually learn a bit more about her because she was quite a private person. And despite becoming friends and often talking about things, she was always looking forward, always talking about the next issue or the mm. next campaign. She often didn't talk about her childhood or her formative experiences. So for me, I wanted to kind of understand someone who had played such a big role in my life, mm. sort of what made her tick. And you had to state the, the obvious 
you were missing the best source material you could have insofar as her, her death was part of the, the, the motivation to write it. You know, I mean, it would have been a very different book, obviously, if she'd been there to ask questions. There are moments in there where you can feel a bit that there are, you, you've had to work harder to fill in gaps. Yeah, and I had to go, you know, back to childhood friends, political opponents, um, everyone. It was interesting, though, because when I first started working for her, I started a summer camp in her chestnut orchard on her farm in the Coromandel. And I went there for, what, 12 years in a row to to attend. And every year she'd sit around this orchard and tell the story of the formation to the Greens and her sort of personal political journey. And so that was this kind of crucial source material, which I had transcribed and then was able to use it as a bit of a base for the book. It was kind of cool to have her life history in a very condensed form uh, written down. Speaking of the Coromandel, you've just, do I have this right, you've just been in Thames? Yep, just launched it in the past weekend. How was that? Was there, did people come out of the woodwork? Did people sort of stream down the hills and to, to spin yarns about the Jeanette they knew? Yeah, well, back in 99, when she was um, just getting on the special, she described it as the ferals came out of the hills and uh. cast their special votes. And it was very similar. You know, it was, um, this was just a lovely, genuinely warm event um, at Carson's Bookshop, you know, the sort of local independent bookstore, all these people that hadn't been seen for years. Mm. And for me, sort of what, uh, and the person I've dedicated the book to is her partner, Harry, mm. who played such a huge role in his inspiration in his own life. And it was quite emotional, actually. He got to say a few words mm. and, yeah, very, very special. What did he say? Well, he just recounted stories, actually, about you know their kayaking adventures, and I guess two years on, he still misses her deeply. I was worried, you know, would, would he point out inaccuracies in the book or things like that, but he didn't, so that was good. <laughs> Let's just quickly, before, I want to get back into that, I want to go back to Thames, but um, for listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with Jeanette Foot-Simons, one of the things that you say at some point in the book is that people... Uh, she was often misdescribed as the founder of the Values Party and the founder of the Greens Party. She wasn't that, but in a way sort of as important as someone as you might describe as a founder. I'm not sure what the word is. What Can you, can you yeah, I mean, she, she was instrumental in the essence, the co-papa of both parties, right? How would, you, how would you describe her in that kind of, in those banner terms? Well, she became probably the most identified green politician in New Zealand. Maybe that's still the case today. Hmm. You know, sort of this, this giant of the movement and historically significant in the sense that she was the first green anywhere in the world to win a seat, uh, pioneered these different forms of working with government in the 2000s. A real sort of, I think, a giant of our early MMP politics. Um, but you know, she wasn't the founder of either party. The formation of the Values Party 50 years just last week mm. was this kind of anarchic, rambling, um, insurgent campaign. And, you know, she was on the other side of the world at this time. And it's amazing that, yeah, this is this really exciting, internationally significant story, which, I mean, I didn't know. Mm. And um, it's great to be able to share it with other people. 1972. It's a big, it's a big, big year for her, a big year for green politics, the green movement more generally. What... Where was she in 1972? What happened to her and how did that fit into a broader global movement? Well, you know, she grew up in Mosgiel, was a, you know, in a, a rural town. Her parents were teachers, uh, went to Waiuku, um, was passionate about music. That, that was her passion in life and horse riding when she was a girl. Mm. And then she got married, moved to Geneva, where she lived for six years with her husband, Bevan. And there, you know, she got involved in, in choirs and musicians, uh, got to like sing choirs in the Congo and exciting places like that, she wasn't really that politically engaged. Mm. And as a child, you know, she didn't talk about politics. 
But it was on a beach in Corsica where she was having a holiday. Her father actually sent her some press clippings of the Values Party and what they were up to in New Zealand. He was kind of taking the piss, actually, because there was a whole bunch of different parties. There was a Mickey Mouse candidate mm. standing for Parliament. But she had just read... He was Limits. a national voter. He was a national voter, that's right. Mm. But she had just read Limits to Growth. There was the ecologist blueprint for survival, mm. uh, which she'd had a copy. And this sort of like switched on a, a, a light for her. And really sort of light, lit this fire in her soul and she you know, joined the Values Party from Switzerland. And this started this 50-year path that she tread. Let's go back to Thames, jumping around the place a bit. 1999, you, you paint a scene, is it, in the, is it in the local pub there, I think? She goes down earlier and being uh, innocent to the kind of the, the orthodox approach, which is that the leaders are to wait at home until they get a steer on the numbers and then arrive with their cavalry or whatever. Tell us, tell us about that night and the, 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 there was kiwi fruit wine sloshing around the place. Uh, Fijo wine. Fijo wine. Which I'm glad to say, the person who supplied the Fijo wine for that party supplied it for the book launch. So Thank goodness. we enjoyed some lovely Fijo wine. I hope it wasn't the same vintage. Oh, I hope not too. It was delicious. Uh, thank you, Lothlorien. Yeah, I mean, she was such a political baby in the sense that she'd been a politician for a term already under sort of Jim Anderton's tutelage as the alliance leader. Mm. But this was standing alone for the first time as, as the leader. And that morning it started with this beautiful rainbow over the Coromandel Hills. And it kind of sounds a little esoteric and uh, new age, but it really gave them sort of confidence that you know, something special was going to happen that day. And she didn't know about you turn up after 10pm when the results are, are known and the lie of the land's there. And then as leader, you give the big speech knowing exactly what the outcome's going to be. She rocked up totally early and couldn't drink at all because, you know, she was um, talking to the media. And because there was no other party leader available, she was constantly doing live crosses to TV. Mm. Meanwhile, her husband, Harry, was filmed drinking a bottle of Fijo wine in the background to his eternal embarrassment. But on election night, you know, after this huge marathon of a campaign where people had written them off. Really, they had no show. It was quite an unlikely victory. They'd split, They'd split. we should say, they'd split from the alliance in a sort of slightly uh, unusual manner insofar as they continued to uh, represent the alliance in the House. They hadn't done the, the jumping from the waka, which became a Jeanette Fitzsimons theme later on. And so they had struggled to sort of forge a particular green identity, again, separate from the alliance they'd been a part of. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, she had entered Parliament in 96 with the alliance, the first MMP election, but things were so hostile and toxic and she was so unhappy in the alliance and yeah. felt that green policies were being absolutely subsumed that it was quite a... Uh, an effort within the party to leave. But the image I've got in my head is of you know a hippie tree sitting, chopping off the branch next to the tree as if they're going to fall off. And it was interesting interviewing the, the first generation of Green MPs. Mm. Only one of them actually thought they had a shot of actually entering Parliament in 99. They'd had allegations of supporting terrorism. Jenny Shipley had gone on the warpath and the electorate to target her, and mm. her only path to success was knocking Jeanette out. And, you know, this, this, this huge campaign where they really battled the odds. And I remember Rod Donald put out a press release celebrating they'd hit 1% in yeah. the polls. Yeah. But on election night, it ended up on 4.9% below the 5% threshold, and she had lost the seat. It was over. She had come second in the Coromandel electorate. And as you say, under the threshold, MMP rules mean you need one or the other. Uh, and so it looked on that night... Like it was game over. Absolutely. After all this effort and stress and uh, personal 
risk that she had taken. I mean, I was an 18 or 17 year old, 18 year old at this time. I, I didn't know these stories. And, you know, as a high school kid, I just remember being excited by the Greens because they were going to wipe student loans and legalize cannabis, right. neither of which have happened, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but the entire Green Party's survival or entry to Parliament was entirely placed on her shoulders. I didn't realise this until obviously researching this book that the only way the Greens were going to get in was to either win Coromandel or look so competitive that they actually had a shot that people could trust them with their party vote. I didn't realise the absolute weight that was placed on her shoulders. And when she went to bed at 2am, I think, as you describe in the book, they were, they were goners. And then... Well, it was interesting. I talked to a her tech person who was crunching the numbers and looked at previous elections, and he was pretty confident. He was mm. telling her not to concede during the election night because hopefully on the specials they would get in. And Bob Brown, the sort of the Jeanette Fitzsimons of Australian politics, Tasmanian senator, mm. um, he was calling her from this valley where he lived in Tasmania because Tasmania's had STV um, a sort of form of proportional voting for more than 100 years. And he was advising her not to concede that on the special votes, where the Greens historically did really well, she could be confident she'd come in. Meanwhile, though, Helen Clark and Jim Anderton spent the next day and week stitching up the government. Uh, maybe they didn't get the same advice, or maybe they were probably more likely moving fast in case the Greens got in. Mm. Stitching up the government, maybe stitching up in a different sense the Greens. The, there's a little note in there which I, which I didn't know about, which is that the two figures you just mentioned, Helen Clark and Jim Anderton, both of which, both of whom played an important part in the story of Jeanette Fitzsimons, they were on a ballot together some million years ago. What was that? Yeah, I mean, I'd never heard this. She'd never mentioned it to me. But in 1977, the first election she actually stood for was for the old Auckland Regional Authority, which is, you know, uh, before the uh, ARC. Both Helen Clark and Jeanette Fitzsimons stood unsuccessfully, but Jim actually got elected to Parliament. And here's these sort of three major figures of our early MMP days mm. standing at the tail end of their parents' generation, you know, the sort of the post-war generation. And so this is a story that you're telling here. It's about Jeanette Fitzsimons, but it has also as part of it a story of the early days of MMP, also this, the, 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 the Green Party, and we'll come back to that in a bit. But going back to that 1999 result, Helen Clark and Jim Anderton, the leader of the New Labour Party and the Alliance, got together and did a deal which meant that the Greens were still needed, right? And I think as you describe it, Jeanette believed that she was being invited to ask for cabinet posts. That, that's right. On election night, without the Greens in Parliament, Jim and Helen had the numbers. Once the Greens entered on the specials and she won Coromandel, they didn't have a majority anymore. They needed the Greens, but they'd already, 24 hours before the special votes came in, they'd announced the ministry, uh, announced the formation of the government. Now, there was only five people in this room that Jeanette describes. Only three of them are still alive. And uh, Roland Sapsford, who recounts the story, was this moment where Jeanette, it was almost like Lord of the Rings, right? The ring was sort of handed out before her and she could have grasped it and become a minister. But despite passionately wanting it, and she thought she would make a good minister, and I genuinely believe she would have, she sort of stepped back from from grasping that ring. And um, there was a lot of wisdom in that decision. Was there? What about if, what about if, what about if it was the wrong decision? I mean... We can do counterfactuals forever, but you broadly support that. And then when we, you know, we'll come to, in 2002, you're a bit more sceptical about what happened, that, 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 that the Greens didn't end up in government. But what if she had said, 
this is what we need. Yes, she was dealing with some newbie MPs, lack of experience. But what if she had said, yep, I want X, Y, and I want energy, I want environment, I want whatever, and they had had that power, things might have been better now for New Zealand's position on climate change, mightn't they? Oh, it's possibly true. But I mean, MMPs littered with the graveyard of, of fresh parties and you know new caucuses which come in and disappear within three years. As she said, you know, her new caucus didn't even know where the toilets were oh. in Parliament. So I think that was a wise decision to, to not jump straight into Cabinet to become a minister. But I think in the book I'm, I am critical and I think that's clearly communicated that they only asked for about $20 million of policy. I think there's something quite principled and idealistic and, and sweet that she was offered political positions, but she asked instead for policy wins. But I think only asking for $20 million was a, a massive missed opportunity. She really had the power of the, of the government in her hands. She could have got millions, hundreds of millions of dollars for policies, billions potentially. So she didn't, I mean, you've got the word gentle in the, in the, on the front of the book, and that's, that's obviously broadly, you regard that as a very positive characteristic, and it's why so many people were drawn to her. But do you think she, the reality is that in MMP politics, she needed to play hardball more? And she was up against hardened tribal politicians, yeah. Anderson and Clark, who had grown up, you know, through the Labour Party hierarchy. If she had, you know, one of her faults was that she was so rational that she believed good argument and a rational process would lead to good decision making. I know that from politics; it's just not true. Mm. Mm. Jim Anderson, quite a. I mean, they worked together for some time. You know, the alliance was an extraordinary political experiment and had enjoyed many successes in, a, in, in, in terms of cobbling itself together to make things work for smaller parties in an MMP environment. But ultimately their styles clashed pretty hard. Yeah, look, he's old Labour, you know, um, uh, grew up in the Catholic youth movement in New Zealand. Um, it was a marriage of convenience. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to see how Anderton sort of wooed Jeanette and the Greens to, to get them in there. But once they were in there, this wasn't the, the new sort of political movement that Jeanette wanted to be part of, that you know, the Values Party had first pioneered in the 70s and 80s. This was kind of, it slowly morphed into politics as normal in New Zealand. And it was interesting charting the, how their relationship broke down, um, the, the, the strong differences between them. Um, but in the end, he was like a mentor for her. And she was a better politician for learning at the feet of you know, one of our most effective politicians, again, a giant himself. And I'm looking forward to Damien Grant's biography of Anderton that's going to come out. Mm. The other absolutely essential political relationship, the most important political relationship she had was with Rod Donald, of course. Um, again, there were contrasts, um, but the way you describe it, they were, uh, they were, it was a yin-yang type situation. Oh, it was incredible. I never met Rod. Mm. I saw him in a cafe about two weeks before he died, and he looked busy, and I didn't want to bother him. I was you know, a young Greenpeace activist. Um, I wish I had, because he, he was an amazing person in his own right. But boy, I don't think there has ever been a political relationship in New Zealand politics as close as these two. You know, they... Um, it was a relationship forged in the fire of leaving the alliance, and that was quite a stressful, protracted uh, campaign. Entering Parliament together as leaders, uh, they lived together. So they would walk to Parliament each morning, uh, you know, talking politics. They wouldn't leave Parliament until twelve, two a.m. every night when mm. the other was ready to go. So they were living together, walking together, talking politics twenty-four-seven. It was quite incredible, and they were so complimentary. This is 
again, something I wasn't paying attention to as a, as a young man with our politics, but she was the strategist, he was the tactician. He loved the media. She suffered it. Uh, he looked after the party, she looked after the government. Um, New Zealand's had a lot of very successful political relationships, and often you want someone quite different and complementary in your leadership team, and they were that and then some. But boy, it was incredibly close. And I didn't realise this working with her in 2006, that when she lost Rod Donald, well, this, this is, I think, a quite an interesting story, which not many people well, people know now because of the book, but people didn't know before. But after the, the terrible 2005 election, it was sort of the, an annus horribilis for her, the sort of nadir mm. uh, of her political career. She was going to the executive meeting. This is probably about two, three weeks after the election. The plan was he was going to go on the Saturday to rack, rack up the troops. She was going to go on the Sunday and announce her retirement. Rod died that evening. So when she was travelling to Wellington from Thames, she thought she was going there to announce her retirement. She instead went there to bury her partner. And um, when I started working with her in 2006, uh, pretty soon after this, I didn't realise that she had only, not only lost her partner, she had actually lost her future. Years of retirement on the farm with Harry that she had sacrificed. And, yeah, it's a, it's a little story I think people might look on now, sort of understanding uh, how hard it was at that time. So that 2005 period of weeks, really, was, you, you say Nadir, you said really interesting way of putting it, that she lost that future or part of her future. She stayed on, felt she needed to consolidate the party. And how did it change at that point, do you think? Was that a, is that, was that a turning point in the history of the Green Party? I think it was. You know, Peter Dunn used to always say the Greens were one campaign, one bad campaign away from oblivion. And at that point, it was true. You know, they just squeaked in past 5% again. And, you know, I don't know. What have they got back if they dropped out? Would have the Greens survived after 2005 if she had left as well as Rod? I mean, these are all sort of hypothetical questions for the future, but very much the party's continual growth and now sort of... Um, it's almost taken for granted the Greens are going to be there, was very much built on the back of her shoulders and that, that rebuilding patch after 2005. But what was interesting, reading, you know, I read every word she said in, in Hansard, for example, mm. how she used to give like long, long speech. She loved talking about her policy ideas and, and her thoughts. She would give like two sentence speeches. She was, um, there was kind of venom in, in her speeches. She was clearly very upset, very hurt, very angry. She'd lost, what, her energy? She'd lost, lost something, she, something that she'd had previously insofar as she was sort of seeing out the time there. Is that what it was? Well, it wasn't seeing out the time, but things were really bad. She'd lost her partner, mm. uh, who lost her best chance to become a minister. Things like climate policy in that period were actually going backwards. Um, things that she'd worked on for, for decades. And again, something I never knew, despite being her friend, was that she started the country's first ever climate campaign in the late 1980s. Yeah. She'd worked on this stuff for decades and we were still going backwards. And many of the same things we can talk about today with climate policy, she was talking about then and was lamenting the lack of action you know, back then. You've got to remember, I was working at Greenpeace in 2005. We actually opened a bottle of bubbly in the old actions warehouse where all the boat and climbing gear was stored because we thought it was going to be a Labour, Green, multi-party government. Mm. That could have been a really progressive, wonderful government. She could have been a cabinet minister in that patch. But instead it became a Winston Peters, Helen Clark, Peter Dunn government. And that's a pattern in different forms of almost but not quite. Right, And there were obviously different arrangements, whether it was <coughs> confidence and supply arrangements or sometimes those uh, MOUs, memorandums of understanding, to, 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 so the Greens were involved. But even to this 
to this day, the Greens have not been in a, in a coalition. It's quite phenomenal, isn't it? You know, 50 years old, they're a middle-aged party now. Um, they're not the fresh-faced new kids on the block, and they still haven't been around the cabinet table, uh, which is interesting. And that was partly the motivation for this book, too, that often in society we don't remember or celebrate the builders, you know, people who operate in an environment that was actively hostile to new ideas. You know, she was such an outsider pushing these ideas like climate change mm. in the 80s, which society wasn't really responding to. Uh, we, we don't remember these stories, and I think it's important, while they're not celebrated or given the opportunities for achievement in their lifetime, t- to celebrate those early builders and, and founders. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 2002, let's just briefly shuttle back to 2002. Jeanette Fitzsimons and the Green Party had created a bottom line on genetic modification and that ended up being a stumbling block, I think it's fair to say, to that ministerial role that she 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 really wanted. Was that a mistake? Personally, I think so. Uh, you know, I'm a politician of a decade's time, so maybe I'm sort of jaded and cynical. And there's a lot to respect in her principled approach. But I think if you look in hindsight with the facts of the matter, she felt very strongly about it. And uh, people can think what they may of that. But the fact is she lost her opportunity for political influence and the moratorium was still lifted. She didn't actually through that hardline, bottom-line position, actually able to stop genetic engineering. And I think it's a tragedy that two of the smartest, most effective politicians of a generation, Helen Clark and Jeanette Fitzsimons, mm. couldn't work together. In fact, that was when the, the, their relationship hit its lowest point. Uh, imagine what the country could have been with those two, deputy and prime minister. It's a, it's a struggle that in some ways is um, sharpened under, under the MMP uh, system, which is the the tension between sticking to kind of values, particularly if they're coming from a relatively radical perspective, and making some compromises in order to gain power, right? Like that's and that's a constant that runs through through, through electoral politics everywhere. We've seen it in a in a way in the in the in the last week with the the um, the Hiwaki plan for to bring agriculture into into the emissions trading scheme. Um, James Shaw, who's the Minister for Climate Change, welcoming it, and the Green Party issuing, within minutes, a press release saying this is nowhere near good enough. It's an interesting tension, isn't it, to try and juggle those two things, the the power and the the critic. Yeah, and she always said that it's become a hackneyed sort of phrase of Stephen Joyce, but you can walk gum and walk it, chew gum and walk at the same time. Walk gum and you chew, can have chew, chew walk, walk all of that. Yeah. <laughs> you can sort of do two things at once yeah. and hold two different ideas in your head at once. And um, yeah, I think she would have navigated that well. Um, you write towards the end of the book about concerns Jeanette Fitzsimons had about the direction of the Green Party after 2017, when the when the Green Party had a, a support agreement with Labour and New Zealand First in a coalition. And, and the impression is that you talked to her about those concerns, that you discussed them together. You, you were in Parliament, of course, at the time. Yeah, that was my last term, uh, that 2017 to 2020 period. 
Yeah, I, I shared concerns too. So, you know, things like the, the speed and the ambition of climate policy, things like the electoral integrity bill, the so-called walker jumping legislation. Mm. You know, that's uh, something I shared with Jeanette and um, maybe older Greens as well. She was she she was she was dead against that that bill that would stop walker jumping. Well, for her, it was you know how the Greens had entered politics, she had seen how political parties had actually moved away from their manifesto commitments or that actually it wasn't just MPs leaving party, it was parties leaving their policies and commitments to voters. Um, For her, it was an integrity issue, it was a policy issue, but I also suspect a sentimental issue as well because, you know, this was the great battle that she and Rod had went through in the 90s and Rod had been such an articulate vocal champion for this issue. And did you talk to her about your own decision to leave? Because it's... I mean, it, it, it was. You're still a young man. You'd done a decade in Parliament. Is that something that was she a kind of? Did she counsel you on that? Was that something you talked about? Yeah, we did actually. She was always really cautious to not damage the party. So she, you know, had some concerns, which I think are, are widely known. Mm. She would talk about issues, but she wouldn't attack the party, and that was something, you know. As a politician, you know, it's a team sport. It's not an individual sport. That was something I was really cognizant of too. So, yeah, there were some decisions I was really unhappy with in that last term of government, but I never wanted to damage a movement that I believed in. You're trying to balance being a critic of the party you were in, and and that's that's good and proper, but what were your specific concerns and what are your concerns now about the... Oh, well, I want to see greater action on climate change. Many other countries around the world have reduced their emissions. We've increased ours 25%. Agriculture is still being subsidised by ordinary consumers doing it really tough at the country at the moment. Things like the integral, the, the, the so-called walker jumping legislation, I never bought the argument that we had to support it because it was in New Zealand's first coalition agreement with Labour. So was a free trade agreement with Putin's Russia. That was never going to happen, and the Green Party would never support that. So I saw it as inconsistent, and yeah, I was a dissenting vote in caucus on that. On climate change and speed of change, what could have been done differently, though, is the is the obvious riposte to that. Without the levers of power, there's only so much you can do. And, I mean, are there things that the Green Party after 2017 could have done to push through uh, emissions reductions more quickly? Well, you've got to remember, agricultural emissions pricing was actually in New Zealand's first confidence and supply agreement. So, you know, th- that could have been advanced at a minimum, but... I saw a struggle when uh, people today or officials are asking for new ideas to reduce emissions in New Zealand. Mm. This has been a debate that's gone on for 40 years. This is something, you know, just take the Greens, for example, have published screeds of policy on. The ideas are out there. It's the political will to implement them. We're not wanting for ideas. The emissions reduction plan was published last month, and that was obviously a huge moment in the New Zealand climate change story. What did you make of it, and what do you think, Jeanette, Fitzsimons would have made of it. I think she was constantly challenging the Greens and all politicians to go further and faster, to to challenge those sacred cows. We've really got to change stuff. We're not here just to manage the decline of the climate and all the issues that come with that. Personally, I think it was a positive start, but it was a, a small start. I was disappointed to see all the plans for, I think, a dozen different plans in the emissions reduction plan. Again, my message from before, you know, the ideas are known, they're out there. Um, we just need to crack on and do them. What about what's happened in Australia recently? Um, obviously, fascinating uh, subplot in the election there was the, this, this teal wave. Um, there's a bit in your book early on where it's the, the idea of um, a national green 
co- co- coalition is described as Elgai rather than Teal, which I thought was quite revealing. But is there any is there any live argument that the Green Party of New Zealand should be a little more like some other green versions around the world where they are open to um, working with the centre-right party, with the National Party? I just think about personally, right? I used to daydream in Parliament listening to dull speeches. And you look around the chamber, right? And there's Greek columns on the walls. There's a lion and a unicorn, the single of England above the speaker's chair. There's grapes and pineapples carved on the roof. You wouldn't even know you were in New Zealand in there. And we sit at these little desks facing each other, the Prime Minister and lead the opposition, sword lengths apart, you know, some old medieval concept. It's this tribal battle, and there's very little opportunity to actually work across party lines. And we know New Zealand has one of the most party-dominated democracies in the developed world. Our parties are incredibly powerful. What Jeanette and a lot of those early founders wanted to do was to reshape politics, that it could be a battle of ideas, and you would find the best solution. Personally, I just wonder, imagine how different the tenor of the debate in Parliament would be if we sat marae style around the walls on the floor instead of facing each other across little desks, you know, maybe would find it easier to reach consensus. MMP is though designed specifically with parties in mind, isn't it? And and you've slightly avoided my question. There was a Green Party bumper sticker in 1990 which read, Green is neither left nor right but out in front. Do you think that the Green Party should be open to a governing arrangement with the National Party at the next election? Well, I'm not a member anymore, so I'm not actively involved in the Greens, and that's a decision for them. Uh, But I know from personal experience, a majority of the membership would find that anathema Hmm. and just absolutely wouldn't support it. So what do you think? Well, I'm not actively involved in politics anymore. No, I know, but what do you you, think? Well, I mean, you're saying it's practically implausible as you answer the question. Well, let me put it this way. I love the idea that in the future there could be a national party Mm. which has kind of changed its policies and its values and, frankly, some of the despicable behaviour they've seen in the past. Couldn't the national party... Maybe the question shouldn't be, can I imagine the Green Party changing enough to work with national? Can I hope for a national party to change enough to really take climate change, poverty and equality seriously? That would be pretty amazing. So you left politics... um, you know, you were there for a decent stretch and you escaped to, you literally escaped to a island deep in, well, not that deep, an island in Otago. Tell us, tell us about what happened to Gareth Hughes after, after leaving Parliament. Well, we actually had a bit of a, a, a terrible patch. My mum died, my wife's brother, only brother died, my dog died, and we were sort of questioning our life. And my kids had grown up in Parliament. They were, gosh, you know, pre-teens at that point. And um, every time I hop on a plane, mm. my heart would break a little bit more when I left my kids. So, you know, we were really questioning uh, what we were doing with our lives, like racing around like mad. And we wanted to go spend quality family time together. So we went down to Otago to support Fano down there. Uh, we wanted to go sailing as a family and really connect that way. But then borders locked down and the pandemic hit and mm. COVID, you know, changed all of our plans. And from our bedroom window, we could see this little island in the distance. And then we heard they were looking for a keeper. And so my wife applied. We were late for the deadline. We, you know, begged if we could please put in a late application. Uh, it was the lockdown. We couldn't even go to the island. We'd pour over satellite maps and look at the history of the island and sort of had this fantastic dream to go there. And then, gosh, my wife got the job and we moved to this island, Quarantine Island, Kamo Tauru. Amazing. 
And uh, is, was it an isolated existence? I mean, we were all in isolation through a lot of that period to some degree, but it does it just just give people a sense of it, how far away from the mainland. It well, was I, I, I don't want to paint a picture that's like we're going to the sub, sub-Antarctic <laughs> islands or something. I mean, this is a, it's a 15-hectare island, yeah. um, about a third bush, a third you know, pasture, a third historic buildings and jetty and stuff. It was about only a seven-minute boat ride to get my kids to school. Mm. Uh, so we were still pretty close. You know, it was at that point where we could still leave the kids on the island when they were old enough and go to the pub. <laughs> and now, you've, you, the island the island venture is over. You've done that, um, that tour. What, 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 are you, what are you up to now? So I'm working, You wrote a book, obviously, I wrote a book, which is not nothing. And it was kind of the best place to do it. So, you know, I was... Um, it was quiet. It was um, isolated. You know, I had this World War One recreation room was our cottage, which had slowly mm. been added on the years. So that's where I did the research and the writing. It was amazing. You know, we would have orca and sea lions swimming past our jetty. Uh, but once the book was done, um, it was time for a, a new challenge. And it was a really great place to sort of decompress from politics to to consider the career and this, this amazing wild ride I'd been on. Mm. But after two years, you know, I, I guess I got a bit anxious and wanted to get back into the battle of ideas. So I applied for a job with a new global coalition called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is pushing for a transformational economic change uh, for people and planet over sort of the neoliberal system we've got at the moment. I was very fortunate. What does that mean? That sounds very woolly to me. I don't know what that means. Well, the way I p- consider it, being a bit of a history geek, is you know, we've been through these major change points in our history, the 1890s with Seddon's government, the 1930s First Labour government, the Fourth Labour government in the 80s. I've grown up in the shadow where we've had a system which focused on, on dollars and money, uh, a limited role for government, uh, constant economic growth. We need to find a new system. And some of the pressures building in society around social cohesion, around inequality, poverty. Um, I mean, the other thing I was working on the island was supporting the food rescue sector, We've got massive entrenched food poverty in this country. Kids are literally going hungry in modern-day New Zealand. These are some of the challenges we've got to grapple with, and I want to be part of working with others to build a new way of organising the economy and society that really puts people and the environment first. And does that new job involve, are you going to be back in the old stomping ground of parliament lobbying? Is it that kind of job? What is it? Are you going to be submitting to select committees? What, what, is, it, what is it going to involve? Well, what I love about this um, global coalition called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance is mm. its theory of change is what we need to do is sheer knowledge of what's happening. And there's really amazing stories of positive change across Aotearoa and around the world, sharing new narratives that things can be different. We can design a system which works for people and planet. And we need to connect existing organisations. There's no one answer that we need to follow and, and march up the hill. You know, we need to c- collectively work together. So what I'll be doing is sort of organising events, uh, hopefully a big national gathering next year. Yes, I'll be lobbying politicians, and that's why I've left the Green Party, because I want to persuade National. Mm. I want to persuade Labour. Mm. What about, speaking of bottom lines and ruling out, you're still a spring chicken. Have another go, another, might, might you stand for Parliament again one day? Who knows? I mean, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I'm on, yeah, you're right, I'm only 40. But boy, that was a, a stressful, stressful, <laughs> hard decade. Yeah. Well, when, I went, when I went back to research the book, sort of my back started getting sore. I started getting a headache. Got a PTSD. Uh, yeah. What would you like the Green Party to do now? What if they, if they as a friendly, non-member, uh, constructive critic, if you could encourage them to do one thing differently now, what would it be? It's to constantly think about the big picture. I reflect on my career as a politician and campaigner at Greenpeace beforehand. I've spent 20 years basically 
fighting the symptoms, not the source of the problems. You know, I've diligently worked on campaigns and changed the law or passed an amendment. And it's like the hydro. There's three more important pressing social or environmental problems behind it. In Parliament, we spent most of our time, and this was my final message to the House, was that most of the debates were what kind of ambulance should it be at the bottom of the cliff? A red state one, a blue privatised one, a green electric ambulance. We really need to think big, think systems level. uh, And for the Green Party, whose kaupapa from 50 years ago, the Values Party, was a fundamental transformation of what society and the economy and Aotearoa could be. So that would be my challenge, to to do well at the day-to-day politics, but really keep your eye on the big picture, keep your eye on the ball. That's what this new, exciting, you know, pioneering idea that emerged out of the 70s, that we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. It's just physically impossible. We have to challenge that. Thank you, Gareth Hughes. It's Gareth Hughes. His book is A Gentle Radical, The Life of Jeanette Fitzsimons. It's got a forward in it by Chloe Swarbrick, and that's Eleanor Nunwin. Kia ora, Gareth. Kia ora. Thanks to Jane Yee and Tiahe Butler, uh, producers on this, I don't know, pop-up, gone by lunchtime? What is it? We'll be back soon. Kia ora. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.